Amen. Let us go before the Lord in our pastoral prayer. It be adopted from this book I'm reading, uh, the prayers of uh, Charles Spurgeon, you know, the great Puritan preacher. Uh, Bob and I have been reading through this uh, book, and I'll be adapting one of his pastoral prayers. So let us go before the Lord and pray. Father, first we come to you this morning as the uh, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I ask you to hear my prayer this morning. Lord, we pray that you will listen to us as we confess before you how unworthy we have been of all your goodness. For we are a sinful people. Lord, we have sinned times without number. And even those of us who are your people and have been born into your house. And we have even more than others mourned over our sin. For Lord, though you have made us aware of them, we have sinned against you in great numbers. Our sins of pride, of unbelief, of hasty judgment, of neglecting and searching your mind through your word, of neglecting to pray in our prayer closet. Lord, we are sinners, and we plead for your mercy this morning to be with us as we come before you. But Lord, we bless you that we will not stand guilty before you because Father, in, in and through Christ there lays no condemnation for your people. Our sins have been washed in the precious blood of Christ. We have been clothed in his righteousness. And we know, Father, that despite our faults, we stand accepted in the beloved. And Lord, we bless you for this. Lord, we thank you that as we are in Christ, we have an advocate. We have a righteous and faithful high priest who intercedes for us before you day and night without ceasing. And Lord, we thank you that as a church and as members of your church and members of this church, those of us who are believers, that, Father, one day we will see you and we will be presented in Christ Jesus without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And, Lord, we desire this morning to contemplate your ways toward us. That, Lord, some of us are enduring the furnace of affliction. We ask you to look on Melissa this morning as she is enduring a great uh, sickness in her body. And her mother has come up from uh, Key West, Florida to, to be with her in her, her, her time of sickness. And, and Father, we pray for her this morning and for the boys, uh, Mason and Maddox, that you be with her, that you strengthen her, that you encourage her by your spirit. And Father, we pray for any of our members in here this morning in this sanctuary that may be enduring any type of suffering, Father. That, Lord, we praise you that even in our sufferings that you are always with us. Through all of our trials, Father, your presence never leaves us. And, Lord, we thank you for the work that Save a Life is doing. We thank you for uh, Pam and all those who are volunteering and for the director. 
and all the gospel work they are doing in saving babies. I pray, Father, that our church, that we are diligent in helping to raise funds for what they are doing to support them. Those of us who are able to volunteer, including myself, volunteering to help the men, that we find ourselves serving uh, this great ministry in Calhoun County. And Father, we're also uh, praying that other churches come aboard. There are many churches in our county uh, who don't know the work that they're doing. I pray, Lord, through, through common grace and through our actions that we let other churches know that they can support this great ministry also. And Lord, we pray that you be with them and that uh, souls are continuing to be saved uh, through their ministry work, that you continue to strengthen them in their work and provide them the help that they need to serve these mothers. And Father, we pray that you work in us according to the word we're about to read, the word that is about to be preached. That, Lord, you send your spirit to illuminate this passage as we look at the rededicating of the wall and how that points us to a proper worship of you. We pray, Lord, that you help me to preach this text well, to be faithful to this text. And Lord, we pray also for our other brethren at our sister churches, Grace Fellowship, Aniston Bible, Redeemer Church, Christian Fellowship, Mountain View Church, Iron City Baptist, and all the brothers at these churches that are laboring in the gospel, that you may help them this morning as they preach and shepherd the flock of God that you have given to us. That you continue to strengthen these faithful men, the faithful elders, the faithful deacons to lead our churches and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, the saving grace of Christ to all who would believe. That we exalt Christ and humble the sinner. That we exalt the Savior and humble the pride of man. And Lord, may you be glorified in what is preached this morning and in our hearing. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Father, may you answer this prayer according to your good, sovereign, and perfect will. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord for the gift of prayer. Let's turn to Nehemiah, the 11th chapter. We've been going through the book of Nehemiah uh, this year. Uh, Ms. Pam, so we're in the 11th and 12th chapter. And we have two more sermons to go after this. And then we'll be in our Easter uh, sermon series for three weeks. And then we'll get into the book of Esther after Easter. So we're coming down to the rededication of the wall. And chapters 11 and 12 chronicle this that takes place. Just remembering, re recapping the book of Nehemiah, remember uh, he was called of God to go to Jerusalem because he heard the ruins that the wall was in and he uh, took one trip to survey it and came back and brought others with them. And despite the great opposition that they encountered, they still uh, built the wall in 53 days in record time. Then once the wall was built, the people went to their cities and then we see over, I think it's chapter 8, where the people came together as one man to 
hear the reading of the law of God because it had been years since that happened. And then after they heard the reading of the word by Ezra and all the, the Levites that dispersed through the crowd, we read in chapter 9 where the people confessed their sins to God after hearing the law of God. And then after they confessed their sins, they made a covenant with the Lord, which we covered uh, last week in chapter 10. They, they rededicated themselves to the Lord. And so now that that's happened and the people have settled into uh, their cities, we come down to where the wall is being officially and formally dedicated. So in chapter 11, just I'm not going to read uh, the whole chapter. Our primary focus is going to be the last part of the 12th chapter. But chapter 11 begins uh, with the leaders of the people. And it says, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of 10 to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. And nine out of 10 remained in other towns outside of Jerusalem. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And then it began to name the chiefs of the people and the different sons and named the priests in verse 10 and then it named the Levites in verse 15 and the gatekeepers in verse 19 and then the overseer of the Levites who was uh, Uzai and then it named the villages outside of Jerusalem beginning at verse uh, 25 and then we get down to chapter 12 it names the priests beginning at verse 1 and then verse 8, it names the Levites. Remember, the priests were the ones who performed the acts of worship. They're the ones who uh, went before the people as their representatives. And then uh, you had the Levites. And then verse 12 names the heads of the fathers' houses. And then verse 22 names the heads of the uh, other fathers' houses. And then the dedication of the wall begins to be chronicled at verse 27. So this is where we're going to read uh, this morning. It says, And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Nephotites and from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth, the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates and the wall and then it goes on to list the leaders that were appointed to the south and then the north and then at the fountain gate and then the water gate. Then verse 38 says the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north and I followed them with half of the people on the wall and on the tower of the ovens and the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and the gate of Yeshanah and by the fish gate 
the tower of Hananel, the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God. And I and half of the officials with me. And then going down to verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. And on that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather them to the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed service to their God in the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the commandment of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and the days of Nehemiah gave daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. So we see here, you see a lot of worship type words in here. You see that they had choirs in antiquity. And the choirs is not just a modern uh, invention in the church. The choirs have been around as long as there has been a people of God. So I want to start this morning by asking a question. What is worship? When you think of worship, that word, I can say that in contemporary American Christianity, sadly, many people think worship is singing songs. You know, the singing portion of church is called the, the worship part of service. But that is a woefully inadequate and woefully uh, helpless and hopeless uh, definition of worship. In his book, the uh, book of Nehemiah, the message of Nehemiah, Raymond Brown, you know, I've been using this commentary as a good secondary source as I've been preaching through this book. This is what he says about what worship means. And just give this a ear. He says, worship is worth ship. The word describes those acts of the mind, the heart, and will whereby we gratefully acknowledge the worth of our God. There can be no other human activity which is so lofty and spiritually determinative as that of adoring. For the main purpose of human existence, according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is this, and we've talked about this before, our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is man's chief purpose. That is why God created us in his image, to glorify him and to worship him forever. He continues, worship is more than vocal and hearing participation in a public service as we offer prayers, singing hymns and songs, hearing readings, and making offerings and listening to Christian preaching. It is the total submission of all we have and are to everything we know of God. 
One of the most pressing issues which needs to be at the heart of contemporary discussion is not what pleases us in the worship, but what most honors God. This is called the regulative principle of worship, where what we do and why we do must be grounded in God's word, which in turn pleases and glorifies him. And I'll stop to say that is how our worship is prescribed. We practice the regulatory principle where whatever scripture prescribes for the church uh, in worship, that is what we do. He continues. The regular principle of worship is prescribed by what is in scripture. The purpose of worship is not to provide us with an emotional feeling on the inside. Euphoric worship may vary little from the inspiration and delight which a person experiences when hearing a beautiful piece of music or watching a emotional Hollywood production. In other words, the value of worship patterns cannot be determined based on feelings or opinions rather than facts. But it must have an objective purpose, which is most helpful to us and must be acceptable to God. So what Raymond Brown is telling us is that worship is primarily, number one, about God. Worship is to be to God and worship is to be for God. Worship is never about the worshiper. Worship is about the one to whom we worship, the object of our worship. The songs that we sing, the words that are preached, the prayers that are prayed, the scriptures that are read, all should be about God, it should be to God, and it should be for God. That is the heart and the essence of worship. It should never be about how things make us feel, how the music makes us feel. You know, we talk about this a lot, and, I, and I've mentioned this here. It is our theology that drives our emotions. It is not our emotions that should drive our theology. What we think about God or how we think about God would drive how we worship God. It would drive how we feel when we sing, there's a fountain filled with blood. And when you, your theology is right and you know what the blood of Christ has done for you, then guess what? When you sing that song, you'll feel that emotion because you know what you're singing about. But in American Christianity especially, worship has been relegated to how music makes me feel or how the preacher makes me feel when he preaches or how the reading of scripture makes me feel. But at its heart, Christianity is about worship. It is about sacrifice. Christ gave his life on the cross as a full and final payment for the sins of those who believe. The elect put their faith in Christ alone and then embark on a life of sacrifice. They give themselves fully and completely to Christ's service. And the result of that is God is glorified and the people of God are satisfied. And see, we find this here in this passage that we're reading and preaching about this morning. Nehemiah understood that a rebuilt city required a energized and committed people. 
So at the beginning of chapter 11, we see that they cast lots to determine who would inhabit the city and who would live outside of the city. And then they needed an adequate number of temple workers. They needed a choir. They needed servants. They needed people to give and support the work of the temple through tithes and offerings. So this was a occasion of great joy that we read about. But it proved that God's glory and man's deep happiness are not at odds. But they fit together because once we joy in God, guess what? God joys and delights in us. And it will pour out in our worship of him. Just a couple observations on the text before we get to our principles. Number one, in verse one, we see that the people uh, cast lots. And casting lots was a way, an ancient way of uh, making decisions uh, which God uh, honored. So Nehemiah, he, re he re redistributed uh, the population so that one out of every 10 Jews uh, will live in Jerusalem because somebody had to live there. You know, somebody had to live there in order to continue the worship of God. And so a question would be asked is, what were two ways people became residents of Jerusalem? We see that in verses 1 and 2. And this is by means of casting lots and volunteers. Another question that I thought about when I was studying this was, uh, how did Israel celebrate the rededication of the walls that we see in verses 27 through 47 of chapter 12? What part did music and praise play in the ceremony? The answer would be they dedicated the wall with gladness and singing and with instruments. We see that in verses 27 through 29 of chapter 12 with the purification of the people by the Levites in verse 30. If you follow along, you can see all these in chapter 12. They had two large choirs singing. We see that in verses 31, 38, and 40. With trumpets, which is the greatest instrument ever invented, if I may say so myself. Because I played trumpet in high school and military and in college. But verse 41, you see trumpets. They offer great sacrifices and rejoice. We see that in the first part of verse 43. They did it by giving, verse 47. By consecrating holy things, also in verse 47. Music and praise played a prominent role in this celebration. And the people excelled in praising God. So we see there was a lot of worship that was involved in the dedicating of this wall. Giving also played a role in it in verses 44 through 47. They supplied the needs of the priests and Levites. They paid the singers and the gatekeepers. And they also gave to the upkeep of the temple. So we see early on the priority of giving to the house of God and what it is for. It is sad that in our day, a lot of people don't see giving to the house of God as that. Now, there are, because of, of sin and sinful people and, and false preachers, false prophets, who have uh, fleeced the people of God and using money for their gain and not, you know, for maintaining the house of worship. But that is God's goal, and that is the purpose 
in the giving to the house of God, to upkeep the temple, to, to pay those, to pay the men of God who labor in preaching and serving. So all this to tell us the big idea is that genuine worship is the most supreme sacrifice a Christian can offer to Christ. And through our principles, we're going to see this. We are five of them. So dedicating the wall involved in acceptable worship through these aspects. Number one, the purpose of worship is praise. We see this in verses 27, 31, 40, and then 45 and 46. The purpose of this act of worship in the 5th century, in the context in which we're reading, was to celebrate what God had done it was to thank him for such astonishing generosity and blessing the people to be able to even get to this point where they rebuilt their city and it was to dedicate the people and their work to his glory so this was a great occasion why not celebrate the first thing they did was they celebrated by magnifying his name now, when we talk about God's name, we must understand what that means. What it means to magnify God's name. God's name speaks of who he is, his character, his person, his work. So when we talk about the name of God, it must align with who God is, how God has revealed himself in his word. That's what we think about when we speak of God's name. Why is God's name worthy to be praised? Just his name, God, Yahweh, Jehovah God. Because it speaks of who he is. He is God. He is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the creator God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the sovereign God. The God who created everything that we see and things that we don't see. The God who stands over his creation. This is what we think about when we think about the name of God, magnifying his name. All celebration of God must begin with him and not with us. They were celebrating who God is, what he has said and what he has done. What did he do? He empowered them to rebuild the wall. He gave them strength. Why? Because when we read earlier, they faced opposition. First from without, and then they faced opposition from within. So who gave them the perseverance to continue? It was God. It is God who always empowers his people to do his work and so that's why we have to give praise to him secondly they thank God for his generosity because they deserve nothing that God did for them in verse 31 we see where they praised God they gave thanks in verse 31 this is in chapter 11 then I brought in the leaders of Judah upon the wall and appointed two great choirs that did what? Gave thanks. One on the south wall to the dawn gate. 
they gathered together to thank God. Why, we, why do we thank God? Why give thanks to God? Why is that important in praising him? We have to understand that we deserve nothing from God. If you think you deserve something from God, you have committed the sin of pride. None of us deserve anything from God. We deserve nothing that God has done for us. You know, we uh, read uh, uh, Romans 5, where Paul tells us about Jesus Christ and that while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ did what? He died for us. While we were sinners, we're the one. We are the ones who are the sinners. And Paul also said that Christ died for us, the just for the unjust. We're the ones who are unjust. We're the ones, our sins are the ones who put Christ on the cross. So because of that, we deserve nothing from God. So when God does do something for us, what are we to do? We're to praise him. We're to give thanks to him. We're to be grateful to God that he gives us the ability to do anything. And that's why we thank him. Thanksgiving, thanking God, praising him, thanking him through praise is always a means to worship him. Thirdly, they offer themselves in dedication to him. Not only do they thank God, but they committed themselves to dedication. To dedicate means to put over the work of human hands to God's ownership. Worship demands the surrender of ourselves and it demands us to surrender to him of all that he has given to us. That's what dedication looks like. We give our lives, we give the works of our hands over to God. God, this is yours. God, my life is yours. When you dedicate your life to the Lord, guess what you're saying? Lord, my whole life belongs to who? To you. We can't take anything for ourselves. That's why Jesus himself said, if any man comes after me. Now, this was a cry. This was a, a preaching call. He says, if any man comes to me, he must first do what? Deny himself. That means deny your rights to yourself. Humble yourself under his lordship. You can't come to Christ with your demands. You can't come to Christ and plea bargain with him. No, you must deny who you are. And take up your cross, the cross of suffering, the cross of shame, the, the cross of reproach. The cross of ridicule, the, the cross of scorn. Bearing the same cross that Christ bore. That takes humility. That takes denying yourself. You can't deny yourself and not suffer. You can't deny yourself and not face ridicule and scorn for being a Christian. That takes self-denial. That takes putting your worth and placing your worth in Christ and not in yourself. 
And then he says, follow him. That's what dedication looks like. We give all of our work to God's ownership. And that's what these people did. That's what they committed to doing in rededicating uh, the wall. They committed themselves and surrendered themselves to Yahweh. Amen. The nature of worship is joyful. We see that in verse 27 again. Celebrate the dedication with gladness. With gladness. With thanksgiving. And with singing. And they use instruments. Cymbals, harps, and lyres. It was a joyful celebration. The secret of acceptable worship is not simply what we do but how we do it the worship of these citizens was a it was a joyous experience and the narrative here says that they celebrate the dedication with gladness they were joyful and our worship of God must be marked by unrestrained joy because God is the one to whom our glory belongs again if we're coming to church looking for an emotional experience or some churches say a worship experience, you're going to be disappointed because you're going to look for all the bells and whistles and tricks every Sunday. And we know churches unfortunately like that where the, 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 the pastors are trying to come up with everything to keep the people's attention every Sunday. That's a lot of work. No, it should be our joy in the Lord that is drawn by what we think of God and who God is to us that brings us joy. When I preach, I preach with joy because of the God that I serve and because what I learn about him as I study and as I read and, and as I pray. It's not drudgery. It's, it's a great joy. It's a great joy when I'm singing hymns to the Lord because I think about the words. I think about the theology in the songs that we sing and how rich they are and how much they exalt God. And so that brings me joy because I know this God that I'm singing to. But a lot of people miss that because their worship is not informed by the God to whom our glory belongs. Their worship is informed by them and to all the glory that belongs to them. The people met with great joy when, they, uh, when the law was read. When they understood the law as it was being read, they had great joy back in chapter 8. During the Feast of Booths in chapter 8, after the law was read, they had joy. Their joy was great. Nehemiah 8 and 17 says that. When we come before the Lord, it should be a joyous occasion full of joyful singing. I love how we sound when we sing. We sing with joy. Our voices are lifted to the Lord. And it is so refreshing, especially uh, with no mask on. <laughs> that was a very tough time back in 2020. I was like, man, you know, you, you don't get to hear people's voices. Like, it was like muffled, but Man, when they came off, it was great to hear everybody's voices singing and rejoicing to the Lord. 
It is something sweet about that when you hear the person next to you singing. And, you know, because I've always said this. We say, oh, I don't have a good voice. Who cares? You're making it about you. That's what you're doing. Who, who gave you your voice? God did. I don't have the best singing voice, but yet I'm helping to lead worship because I'm singing to God. It is to him that all glory goes. And when I'm singing to the Lord, that's all I'm concerned about is how do I sound to my God? And that is how we should all be when we're singing to the Lord. We're singing to an audience of one. Now we sing among each other and with each other as we lift our voices corporately to the audience of one. And that is how we should approach our singing. That is how we should approach when we're reading scripture. We're reading God's, you know, and I say this all the time. We don't really think about it. This is the very word of God. These are God's words. This is not some book of fiction that a great writer wrote. No, these are God's words. This is the very word of God that we are reading. So when we're reading scripture, guess what? We should read it with joy. Why? Because we're reading the very word of God. These are his words. You want to hear God speak? Open up the Bible and read his word. That brings us what? Great joy. That brings us great joy. So we come before the Lord, the nature of our worship. And again, it's not legalistic. But man, I got I to gotta come in church on 100 today. No, that's not what that means. It starts before you even get to church. It starts during the week. It starts in the prayer closet during the week. It starts in your time in the word. It starts in, in endeavoring every day to live a life of worship to God. When you go to work, when you go to school, when you're out in the public square. It starts before Sunday morning. And as you go through the week, that anticipation of the Lord's Day, that anticipation of the gathered church, not just here, but around the world, we're worshiping with other believers from around the world every Lord's Day. That's a cause of joy. Just like when we get together with our sister churches, it's the same thing. I tell, you know, Bob all the time, I always enjoy when we all get together. It's, 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 it's so joyful seeing the other saints from our sister churches. It's such, a, it's, it's such a time of great refreshing. But I don't look at that any greater than I look at worshiping here at our own church. Because it's still a joy to come to the Lord's house every Sunday and every Wednesday to worship God together. That is what gives us joy, knowing who we serve. That is the nature of worship. And also the true source of our joy is God. The true source of our joy is God. We see that in verse 43 of chapter uh, 12. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. The word for means because. It's an explanation. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. Man. God is the true source of our joy. 
You know, the world can't have joy. Joy only comes from the Lord. They may have moments of, you know, through common grace, they have moments of happiness. You know, God does that. He, he reigns on the just as well as the unjust. God may give those who reject him, he may give them moments of happiness through common grace, but they can never have joy because joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is only endued by those who have the Spirit of God. And those who have the Spirit of God are those who are born again, who have been regenerated. Only believers can have true joy. And man, that joy goes no matter what. It's not transient. It doesn't come and go. No, it is always there. God gives us joy in trials. That doesn't mean that you're going to be happy. You got to go around with a big smile on your face, fake it till you make it type lies. No, that's not what that means. But you know that in the midst of all your trials, you have joy because you know that what? God is with you. That God has not abandoned you. That Christ is praying for you. That the Holy Spirit, as Paul testifies in Romans 8, is making intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. That should give us joy even in our trials. Because we know that even in those trials, God is not abandoning us. That gives us joy. That doesn't launch us into a life of despair. The priority of worship, next principle, is holiness. We see this in verse 30, back in chapter 12, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Scripture emphasizes a quality which takes priority over music ability. And that quality is our heart. The hearts of the worshipers are of better importance than their voices. Our hearts matter in worship. Are our hearts pure? Because the Lord is not moved by lofty words. He's not moved by someone's great talent. He's not moved by the type of music that we sing. If he senses that we are unworthy and unacceptable in the way in which we live. Because what we must understand is that the condition of our hearts matters as we worship God. It doesn't mean that we are going to be perfect, but we cannot discount the condition of our heart and how that matters. God, through the prophet Isaiah, told the people of Judah this and Isaiah 1 verse, begin at verse 11. This is what the Lord says, and listen to God as he scorns his people about their hypocritical worship. The Lord says, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. So God was saying, all of your acts of worship, I had enough of. When you come to appear before me, 
Who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more empty sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. In other words, sin and meeting together, God cannot endure. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. So what was God telling his people? That all these acts of worship don't matter because your hearts are not right. Your hearts shed blood. So purity, priority, the holiness of our lives matters when we come to worship God. That's why we uh, do a prayer of confession of sins in the opening part of our worship to confess our sins for the Lord. But you shouldn't wait till Sunday morning to do that. <laughs> okay? We talk about that. You, you pray and confess your sins to God every day because just in case you didn't know, you're a sinner and I am too. I am a great sinner, but I have a great Savior. All of us sin every single day in our thoughts, our words, and in our deeds. We sin in our thought life. We think unholy thoughts. We think unclean thoughts. If people could read our thoughts right now, I wish Pastor would hurry up and be quiet. I'm hungry. I got something to do. I got somewhere to be. I got somewhere to go. I'm tired of hearing this preaching. We've been in here too long. If people could just read our thoughts, we wouldn't think anything. But who does read our thoughts? God knows our thoughts are far off, as Scripture says. He knows what we think before we even think it. We're sinners. We sin in our thoughts. We sin in our words. We don't always say the right thing. We assassinate people's character behind their back. We gossip, and as old folks say, we're tailbearers. We sin in our words. We don't always have the best reaction to people. We'll, we'll snap. We'll be short and curt with people sometimes. And we sin in our actions. We sin by omission and commission. We, 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 we neglect to do things that we ought to do. And we do things that we ought not do. So you're telling me that we don't have cause to confess our sins to the holy and righteous God. We do that throughout the week. Not just waiting until Sunday morning during the prayer of confession. Amen. Because holiness matters to God in worship. The unity of worship is that all are debtors. All of us are debtors to God's grace. All of us are debtors to God's grace. 
This act of worship was an occasion. Uh, Raven Brown said this, this act of worship was an occasion which not only the citizens of Jerusalem, but people from the surrounding countryside, the urban and rural populations rub shoulders as they rejoice in the infinite mercy of God. All are debtors to God's grace. It says in verse 27 and 28, verse 28 especially, the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites. Not just the people in Jerusalem, but the people outside of Jerusalem were debtors of God's grace too. This is a picture. This is a foretaste of the day when people from all nations and tongues would gather around the throne to worship Christ as Lord. We see that written out in Revelation uh, 7 verses 9 through 10. And this is what John the Apostle wrote. And after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. You know the white robe symbolizes purity. And crying out with a loud voice saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's what all of the redeemed are going to be saying. Why? Because all people are debtors to God and his grace. So when we're all together, when we're all gathered together around that throne, guess what? All of us are going to be debtors to God's grace as we sing together that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Man, that is so great of a truth. So that's what this is a picture of. And this is not something that we have to wait for when we get to heaven. Because it is to be the purpose and ministry of every church. Worship is to be a noticeably unifying experience. People from all walks of life stand in equal need of the Lord's mercy. And all of us are debtors to God's astonishing grace. And, and you all know this, those of us who've been here long enough, we have never made church and never will make church about the color of a person's skin. And we never will. We will never make church about uh, how much money a person makes or what station in life they are because that is not what matters. We make church about the head of the church, who is Jesus Christ, and his glory, his gospel, and proclaiming his gospel to this world. That is what church is about and should always be about. And we endeavor to do that from the beginning, and by God's grace, I have to tell this quick story. Uh, none of y'all were here when this happened, when we first started off over there 
in that little building on Wilmer. We had the, um, and this is not to take a, a shot at them, but this is just an illustration of what I'm talking about. The uh, Calvin Baptist Association wanted more black churches or black pastors in their association, right? So uh, I remember this like it was yesterday. Uh, I had a lunch meeting at Cracker Barrel over there in Oxford with Dr. Sid Nichols, who was over the association at that time, and John Thomas, uh, who was like the church uh, liaison, and Brad Williams was pastor at uh, Greenbrier Baptist Church at that time, and uh, they were going to be our sponsor church. So we met at Cracker Barrel, and uh, I, I listened to uh, Dr. Sid give his presentation and everything, and uh, and actually John came to our church and spoke uh, to us about the association. But this is one thing I told Dr. Nichols at that table. This was back in 2011. You know, because they were talking about they, they wanted, you know, a black church and a black pastor in the association. I told them, one, I don't use those categories. There's no such thing as a black church, number one. <laughs> I said, number two, I'm a pastor of God's people. And it should not matter to y'all the, the color of my skin. I said, I'm offended by that. And I said, number three, our church will not be a part of an association that is going to look to us as a token church. Those are the three things I said to him in that meeting at that table. I said it just like that. I was very respectful. I said, we're not a black church. I don't believe in black church, white church, all those categories. Those are unbiblical terms. I said, we are a church. I just happen to have more melanin in my skin than you do. <laughs> okay. I said, that's it. That's the only difference between us. I say, I just have more melanin. I have a higher melanin count. And that's all the difference that we have. I say that because you talk about unity. What unites us, you know, I prayed that pastoral prayer of unity back at uh, the joint service we had uh, two Sunday nights ago at ABC. And, 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 that, and that prayer, I got a lot of good response from it. Uh, one thing I prayed about in that prayer was the fact that as believers, we have one common Savior, that's Jesus. We have one Lord, we have one faith, we have one baptism. One God and Father of all who is above all and in all and through us all. That's Philippians 4, 1 and 2. I mean Ephesians 4, 1 and 2. We have a common inheritance. And that is a salvation in and through Jesus Christ and we're one with God through Christ that is our inheritance that we are co-heirs with Christ that is what unites us that is what should unite all what should unite all of us as believers what we have in Christ not the melanin count in our skin that's not what unites us because Christ supersedes all that. What do we have in him? Who are we in him? Paul in Ephesians. In him. In him. In him. In him. In him. It is all about what we have in Christ as believers. We have salvation in Christ. We're redeemed 
in Christ. We are reconciled to God. We're made right with God in Christ. That's what matters. That's what brings true unity in worship. When we realize that all of us are debtors of God's grace, regardless of skin color. All of us. And I heard an old preacher say one time, there's an old hymn that says, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're all on the same plane. All of us, okay, need that salvation. All of us. That's what brings true unity, knowing that all of us are debtors of that grace. All of us are debtors of God's mercy. There's no one person, there's no one group, no one skin color that deserves more or less grace than another. That is the world's lie. And unfortunately, the church has, has uh, eaten the poison. And unfortunately, it's torn. And I just tell y'all now, I, I've helped our churches to not go in that direction years ago, our sister churches. I was like, guys, don't do it. Don't. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to divide your church. Starting back in 2014, 2015, I was telling Bob and, and Carlton and Ryan when, when Ryan was at Redeemer at that time, I was like, don't do it. Don't go down that road. It's no. It's going to tear your church apart. We did that uh, social justice thing back in 2018 at ABC. That was the reason why we did that, uh, Bob and I. For those who hit that time, and remember we did that joint service at ABC. We had the question and answer session after we did that because I addressed my concerns to him about not going down that road as a church and as churches because that's how much I love the church and we as believers in here have to have that same mindset and that same worldview we are united in the fact that all of us are debtors and these people that we're reading about in this context were the same their, their society was different because you had those who were inside the city and those who were outside the city. That was their context, but the same principle applies. That those who lived in the rural areas of, of uh, Israel were just as much a part of worshiping God as those who lived inside the holy city of David. That was the unity that they had. And then the cost of worship. Sacrificial giving. We see this in verses 44 through 47. Yet men that were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather them into portions required by the law. So they had to gather. And then they also uh, took care of the singers and gatekeepers, daily portions, verse 47. And they also made sure that the Levites were taken care of. So another aspect of authentic worship is the offering of our money as well as our time and service for the Lord's work. The great service of dedication would draw to its close, but the provision had to be made 
for the continuing the worship of God's people. So, you know, hey, they were excited about the walls being completed and the temple being done. So now they had to support the work. It's like the excitement of getting your first house. You get the house, you get the keys, you sit down and do your closing for those of us who, who, who've experienced that before. You know, you, you go on to the, you know, the closing and you sign all these papers and seem like you're signing your life away because you are. And then you got to make that first mortgage payment. <laughs> yes, you got the house, but now you got to do what? You got to pay that mortgage. You got to pay the water bill. You got to pay the power bill. You got to pay for the trash. Pump cities, you got to pay for the sewage. You got to pay for um, the yard, the grass to be cut. If, if, if you like me and too busy to do it on y'all, you got to pay somebody to do that. You got to pay when stuff gets torn up, when things break down, things get old. You got to do what? You got to take care of it. Same goes for the house of God. Same goes for worshiping and serving God. It must be provided for in the continuing worship of God's people. And that's what we saw in those verses. Raymond Brown pointed out that in recording this narrative, he says, our author mentioned six characteristics of the peoples given to the Lord. First, he said it was organized as verse 44, men were appointed. He said it was specific. You had contributions, first fruits and tithes in verse 44. He said it was grateful because the ministry of God's servants had brought them such delight for Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites in verse 44. He says it was obligatory. In other words, everyone was obligated. We see that in verse 47. He said all Israel. Notice that all Israel. In the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, they did what? They gave daily portions for the singers. I'll tell you what. That would be a grand day. Not just in this church. I, I don't know who gives what in this church. I don't. Grand tell you, I don't. But I'm thinking about bigger churches. Like churches with three, four, five hundred people. I guarantee you, in those churches, probably 20% to 30% of the people give. Notice that 80-20 that principle. 20% 20% of words done by 80% of words done by 20% of the people. And I made this joke years ago. If if the church had to rely on young people to give, there wouldn't be a church. <laughs> it just wouldn't be. <laughs> if the church had to rely on young people to give, woof! It would not, man. We wouldn't be able to keep the lights on here. We'd be sitting in the dark or sitting outside in the parking lot somewhere with a makeshift tent. <laughs> but the thing is, it's a, it was obligatory. All Israel contributed. And then he says worship was regular. They gave daily. I don't mean you have to get daily, but just the principle behind it, just the regulation of giving. And he says it was universal. Everyone, including the Levites, set aside a portion for the priests support so it was organized specific grateful 
obligatory, regular, and universal. It was all hand, all hands on deck thing. This is a picture of how the church should be. Remember the the temple and the wall were pictures of Christ. And they were ultimately pointing to the church and the worship of God and how we as believers are to take care of the Lord's house and take care of the, the men who labor in preaching in the Lord's house and shepherding the flock. Paul talked about this in the New Testament. Uh, Romans 12, uh, 1 Corinthians 16. He says, You're not concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must also do on the first day of the week. Let each one of you lay, lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. So Paul, uh, when he came, before he came to Corinth, you know, to deliver his letter, hey, let's, first day of the week, take up something so that when I come, I won't have to take up a collection. Remember, they didn't, you know, they had to gather from, you know, they didn't have cars and all that stuff. They didn't have PayPal or Cash App and all that stuff. No, they had to physically go gather the offering and bring it. Okay, but the point is that told them first day of the week, you know, the Lord's Day, which is what that was, to store up something as you may prosper. Then 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 talks about stewardship and about giving. Philippians 4, 10 through 19, same thing. My God shall supply all my need according to his riches and glory. Paul said that in response to the Philippians being so sacrificial in their giving to him. So the point is, is that he emphasized the priority of giving. He rightly insisted that God's servants and needy people must be lovingly and regularly supported. And the early Christian church did this as a great example. No worship can be honored to God if those who serve the Lord are deprived of life's basic necessities. That's why we take care of uh, our pastors and our preachers to make sure that they are not deprived of taking care of their families and also of shepherding the church. So we see all these as principles of worship, praise, joyfulness, holiness, knowing that we're debtors, and sacrificial giving. So let's look at our gospel implications here as we get ready to close at applications. Number one, the first implication we see in this passage is that we said this earlier, God is the true source of the believer's joy. As believers, we must know this gospel truth that God is the true source of our joy. He is the one who causes us to be joyful. Number two, God restores us back to him through Christ. That is how we're reconciled to God. It is only through Christ. Remember, we say it all the time. Nobody can get right with God by themselves. Nobody can make their peace, quote unquote, with God by themselves on their own terms. It is only done by salvation through Christ. Number three, the gospel calls us to be holy. It's not just about being saved, getting a uh, get out of hell ticket. 
No, God calls us to a holy life. It's not just about being saved from hell, little kids. It's about living a holy life. That is what salvation is about. God saves us in order to live that life. And the gospel calls us to support the Lord's work. First, in our church. The church is first and foremost. And then through the efforts of power church ministries or ministries that do the Lord's work in our community, like Save a Life. They're doing the Lord's work in saving babies. And not only saving babies, but ministering Christ to those women. They're ministering the gospel. They're not to replace the church. We, we support them. We support the church first. But through our support of the church, then we do what? We support the work that they're doing. Uh, ministries like them. We were at one time supporting some organizations that are not doing the Lord's work. Uh, we appreciate what they do in the community, but we stopped doing that because they were not doing the Lord's work. And the, the um, leader of this certain um, organization in town that, that helps uh, women, uh, you know, found out some things about her and her worldview, and our church stopped supporting uh, this organization that helps abuse women. We, we, we stopped because of some things that, uh, that I heard, and we don't want to be putting our money uh, toward that. We appreciate the work that they do, but they're not doing gospel work. I'll just say that. We want to support those that do gospel work. And applications, praise God with excellence. As we worship God, as we praise him in church, in public worship, and even in your private time, we do it with excellence. We celebrate God with a joyful heart. Remember, it is our theology that drives our joy. It's not the other way around. What we think of God, how we meditate on God, what we read of God, that drives our joy, that drives our worship. Live for God with a holy life. Worship God with all peoples, despite <clears throat> their lot in life. And give to God what's best. So praise, celebrate, break, live, worship, and give. All of those are ways that we worship God. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have shown us through your word how to properly worship you. We thank you, Lord, for the means of worship that you have given us. Your word, prayer, praise, confession of sin, the administering of the sacraments. We thank you, Father. You're so great a God. You're so worthy to be praised. Father, help us to cultivate a heart of worship. Help us to praise you with excellence, to celebrate you with a joyful heart, to live for you with a holy life, to worship you with all peoples, and to give to you what's best. And Lord, I pray that if there's an unbeliever who hears this message, that they may be convicted of their sins, that they may know their insufficiency and their need for a savior 
and their father they may fall to their knees call out to you to save them from their sins to save them from the misery of sin the guilt of sin the condemnation of sin to save them from the wrath of God to come and regenerate their hearts Lord that they may be saved and begin a life anew again Lord we thank you for the ministry of of save a life we pray father for gospel fruit we thank you for their ministry we pray that you continue to persevere them there are more churches come alongside them their volunteers may come to serve and lord we're praying also for ways of legislation or other ways that the abortion pill the plan b pill may be uh stop from being distributed because Lord those women are hurting their bodies they're killing a human life inside of them Lord we pray right now for people for women who are considering abortions who are considering murdering their child Father that you may touch their hearts that, that through your, your grace and your providence that you may lead them to organizations like Save a Life and others in this state and in this nation lead them to those places Lord that their babies may be saved that they may be born Father thank you for your word thank you for your grace and your mercy in Christ's name I pray Amen